Since the recent Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, companies have been impacted nationwide and have several new legal angles to consider as it relates to their employees and their businesses. With that in mind, we've created a new podcast series, Dobbs On Demand, designed to help you navigate this new and evolving landscape. We'll feature partners from our labor and employment, employee benefits, white collar, digital assets and data management, and healthcare practices as we break down the top issues and changes in law. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Host. On this episode of Dobbs on Demand, we will discuss several legal perspectives that employers should consider in light of the Dobbs decision. Our guests today are Kimmy Gordy and Alex Vold, partners in our digital assets and data management practice and members of our Dobbs Decision Task Force. Welcome to the show, Kimmy and Alex. Hi, thanks so much for having us. So happy to be here to talk about this subject. I understand that in the last several weeks, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, or OCR, and the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, have both come out with guidance on reproductive health privacy. Kimmy, I'd like to start by asking a foundational question. Are all businesses subject to the guidance, or does the guidance only cover some of the entities? That's a great question, and it's a source of confusion um, for a lot of people. Who does HIPAA actually apply to? So the OCR's jurisdiction is limited to HIPAA-covered entities and their business associates. And a covered entity means a healthcare provider, a health insurer, or a health insurance clearinghouse that conducts what's called a covered transaction. And we normally think of this as electronically processing insurance claims or Medicare claims. So a cash-only provider is not going to be subject to HIPAA. Example would be a psychologist that only has her patients pay via Venmo or cash. Um, A business associate is a company that performs some operational function that involves accessing or processing or viewing protected health information, commonly known as PHI, to a covered entity. So somebody that you hire to paint the outside of a hospital building or remove shredded garbage would not necessarily be a business associate because they're not accessing and viewing health information. But a food service vendor that comes in and delivers trays to hospital rooms and sees the dietary restrictions could be a business associate, just the way a law firm who may see patient information as a result of helping you know, advise clients on legal responsibilities would be a business associate. And so for the FTC, it's cast a little bit wider of a net with respect to who is subject to their guidance. The FTC is in charge of investigating and prosecuting unfair or fraudulent business practices, among some other things. The FTC, though, can target really any person or entity that offers goods or services uh, in interstate commerce. So examples of FTC cases in recent history include an action against a grill maker for allegedly restricting consumers' ability to repair the products that they've purchased, or an action against the consumer tax preparation service for allegedly misleading consumers that the service was, quote, free. So it is a wider net than uh, than OCR's jurisdiction. There can be some overlap, particularly with respect to you know the business associates that Kimmy referenced, because they often provide services outside of the hospital setting as well. Let's talk about OCR's guidance first. Alex, what have we heard from OCR regarding patient privacy post-Dobbs? 
So we've gotten two privacy-related guidance documents from OCR recently after the DOPS decision. I'll cover the first one, uh, and I'll have Kimmy chime in on the second. So the first thing we heard from OCR uh, was guidance that, although uh, HIPAA permits the disclosure of PHI to law enforcement and in response to court orders without a patient's consent, that disclosure is not required by HIPAA. Importantly, this is not a new rule. HIPAA has a number of um, standards that basically dictates when um, disclosure of PHI can be done at all, and then if there can be a disclosure, kind of what parameters exist around those disclosures. Sometimes it requires patient consent, sometimes it requires um, you know, so, some power of attorney, and sometimes it requires no consent at all for, for kind of limited circumstances. And so some of those limited circumstances have always been um, those situations where a provider or other covered entity is presented, like I said, with a court order or there's a request from law enforcement. So what this guidance essentially did was it just kind of reiterated that um, no one should read that um, permissible disclosure without authorization as a required disclosure. So the impact is, as a result, kind of limited, um, you know, to the extent that a covered entity or, or business associate fights a request from law enforcement or through a court order, the guidance is, I guess, kind of an easy rebuttal to an uneducated litigant who says, hey, HIPAA requires this disclosure because it's in response to a court order or, you know, in response to a, a law enforcement request. So. The, the provider, the, the covered entity, or the business associate can say, no, look, here's this guidance from OCR. It specifically says it's not required. Again, that was never, never the language anyway. But, you know, importantly, the guidance does not create grounds for circumventing these types of requests, which uh, we've got a lot of questions about from uh, our covered entity and business associate clients. Uh, there was a call out by OCR saying uh, that, you know, you don't have to, um, you're not required to respond. And they said, okay, great. How, how do we, how do we fight the, these requests or how do we kind of challenge them? That is not something OCR provided in this document. Um, you know, there are, they're based on the state that an entity is in, there are kind of procedural and legal grounds to avoid responding or try to quash these types of requests. Um, but that, you know, those avenues have not changed based on uh, OCR's guidance. The other piece of guidance that came down was directed specifically at the nation's 60,000 retail pharmacies, which is really the hub of where most Americans get their prescription medications. So that's your, your Walgreens, your CVS, your pharmacies inside the Target. Um, the OCR made clear that a pharmacy's refusal to dispense a correctly prescribed medication because that medication could also be used for abortion-related care or is being used for abortion-related care will be considered a discriminatory act. And so why does this apply to you know, your average grocery store pharmacy? Well, as a recipient of federal funding, primarily Medicare, retail pharmacies are prohibited from discriminatory practices. And that includes discrimination on the basis of gender, sex, race, all your typical protected classes. That also includes discrimination on the basis of pregnancy or a pregnancy-related condition. And a pregnancy-related condition is one that is, you know, early pregnancy, caring for someone after a pregnancy, caring for someone intending to be pregnant, 
Um, the guidance carved out several scenarios uh, in which conduct by a pharmacy or behavior of a pharmacist, which then gets transferred to the pharmacy from a liability perspective, would be considered discrimination. So the first you know, example is if a pharmacy refuses to fill a prescription for a medication needed to manage a pregnancy loss, um, whether you know unintended like a miscarriage or intended like an abortion procedure, um, including something like antibiotics, because it could also be used to terminate a pregnancy, OCR is going to treat that as discriminatory conduct on the basis of sex. Similarly, if a pharmacy refuses to dispense a medication, um, the popular example right now is methotrexate, because that is a drug used to treat a lot of autoimmune conditions, um, one primarily being rheumatoid arthritis, but it also is used for lupus, variety of other things. But it can also be used for pregnancy termination purposes. Um, that will also be considered discriminatory conduct, but on the basis of disability. Because that medication was prescribed and needed to treat a condition that is a recognized disability, it meets the definition of a disability under federal civil rights law. So what this guidance is really saying, it's not, it's not earth shattering, it's not creating any new rules, but it is telling pharmacies, it's putting them on notice that if your pharmacist or a pharmacy tech says, we're not going to stock medications that could be used for abortion, or we're going to you know, question a patient and then not dispense a prescription because it has something to do with abortion, um, that could definitely be considered discrimination. The guidance from the OCR doesn't create any new right of privacy or administrative penalties that weren't there before. Do we expect that to come, Kimmy? Well, you're correct. The guidance does not create new penalties or rights. It simply sets out their intent to enforce these rights using the tools OCR already had at its disposal. But it, it's worth noting that there are some calls from pro-choice lawmakers to amend HIPAA to further restrict when PHI can be disclosed without patient consent. And this could look like, it, it, it could come a couple of ways. It could look like a blanket prohibition on the disclosure of sensitive data without patient consent. And, and sensitive data is something, of course, that's open to interpretation. Um, or it could be a prohibition on disclosing data related to reproductive care without patient consent, which would be more narrow, more easily defined and understood. And I think given the right climate, I think a narrow amendment to address these issues is certainly possible. In January of 2020, the prior administration amended HITECH, which is HIPAA's sister statute, to include consideration of recognized security practices as a mitigating factor when determining fines and other penalties for violation of um, HIPAA's breach notification rule. And this tells us that a discrete amendment is not beyond the realm of possibility here, but it definitely would probably take a little bit of of political jockeying to get something through. So I don't know when we would expect that, but it's certainly not off the table. For non-HIPAA-covered entities, what has the FTC said about privacy issues post-Dobbs, Alex? The FTC recently came out with a public letter that really for the first time addressed false claims about uh, data de-identification or data aggregation practices by website operators or app companies. Just a quick side note, HIPAA, as we've you know, been talking about, um, which covers only a, a small slice of this population of businesses, 
provides very specific rules about what constitutes de-identified data, either the removal of 18 specific data elements, uh, all 18, or uh, getting an expert opinion that for a particular data set that has been cleaned of some, but maybe not all of the 18 identifiers, that the risk is, and I'm quoting here, very small, that the information could be used alone or in combination with other reasonably available information by an anticipated recipient to identify an individual who is a subject of the information. Essentially, it's unlikely, quite unlikely, that given how much data has been removed from a data set, that anyone could say, oh, this must be Alex Fold. Uh, so the FTC, however, has not ever promulgated kind of similarly strict rules or guidance. The last time the FTC actually discussed the identification was in 2012, uh, when in its privacy report, it said that companies have to, quote, achieve a reasonable level of justified confidence that data cannot reasonably be used to infer information about or otherwise be linked to a particular consumer. So no expert opinion, no specifics about what identifiers must be removed. Um, so, you know, all that the FCC said with that is that companies have to take reasonable steps to ensure de-identification. Um, kind of de-identification is in the eye of the beholder, I guess, at that point. Um, you know, folks that have not kind of been presented with a HIPAA-esque uh, rule set might think that the name alone, if I take that out, might be sufficient to de-identify data um, when really if you're the only 36-year-old in a, you know, rural Wisconsin town making, you know, over $300,000 a year uh, and are, you know, female, they may be able to, you know, figure that out. Individuals may be able to kind of um, correlate all of that, you know, non-specific, you know, name information to, uh, to a particular person. So, Against that backdrop, the FTC said on July 11th that companies that state in their privacy policy or their kind of terms of use policies that they will not uh, use non-de-identified data, or in other words, they will only, you know, kind of reuse de-identified data or some similar claim, they better be sure that that's true or FTC will come after those companies. They said you will be hearing from the FTC. So uh, the FTC in this letter didn't ever say Dobbs or abortion, although they did kind of highlight reproductive health information as being particularly sensitive. Um, and so kind of between the, the timing of the letter and the, that reference, I think we can um, kind of uh, logically understand that it naturally flows from, kind of from Dobbs and where we are now in the post-Dobbs digital economy. So companies that collect data, particularly health-related data, need to take a very close look at their privacy policies in terms of use to see what they're saying to their consumers and users about data de-identification or data reuse or data aggregation, and then make sure that they can back up those statements with their data practices, with their de-identification practices. And again, it's tough because we don't have a particular set of, um, of rules like we do in HIPAA to say, this will you know, be sufficient in the FTC's eyes um, if we were challenged on our de-identification. Um, there are many companies out there that, that assist with de-identification and particularly apps in that health space that collect you know, fertility data um, and any kind of reproductive health information really need to be careful um, because I think this is going to be a new avenue of enforcement for the FTC 
in the in the coming years. And it's not outside of, of what they've done previously. They had a uh, settlement with a, um, a period tracking app about uh, their sale of data when they said they were not selling data. Uh, so it's not um, it's it's really not jumping into completely new territory for them. This is a continuation and a good reminder to companies that um, you know the way they represent their use of data uh, really needs to jive with consumers' expectations and what they are doing internally. Alex, do you have any final thoughts on health information privacy for covered entities and their business associates for our listeners today? Yeah, you know, we are getting a lot of questions that kind of struggle with the hypothetical situations and how a business a covered entity, a business associate will respond or kind of what liability might be incurred as a result of this, you know, future hypothetical situations. You know, those are obviously entity specific questions and, um, you know, strategy specific to each individual entity. But, you know, one of the most consistent themes in our advice is to have discussions with business partners around kind of central issues related to the treatment of uh, or requests for reproductive health information before the day kind of those hypothetical questions come into reality. So in other words, a covered entity may be finalizing its own stance on how, you know, it will deal with a governmental request, for instance, uh, that includes, you know, patient records um, that have in them, um, you know, abortion-related services. But if they share patient information and patient records with business associates, which many do lawfully for a number of very legitimate reasons, uh, and if they don't convey that stance to a business associate who might also be or um, maybe solely be subject to the same request, that business associate may not act in a way that's aligned with the covered entities kind of newly created stance on these types of issues. A lot of, um, I shouldn't say a lot of times, sometimes, you know, there's specific language in business associate agreements or contracts that discuss, you know, responses to subpoenas, um, et cetera, but they're generally not incredibly robust and certainly, uh, you know, we're not contemplating this type of issue at the time they were written. Um, you know, to the extent they were written before Dobbs came out. So just, you know, making sure, you know, both for covered entities and business associates, they should really, you know, kind of work together to assess um, and understand and align. Um, and really the business associate is only permitted to use PHI in a way that, um, you know, their contract with a covered entity uh, dictates. And so the covered entity really does get to call the shots in these situations. Um, but also, you know, with respect to instances where covered entities uh, are transferring patient information to a business associate, they should work together to assess whether they want uh, all of the information that they previously were sending to a business associate to go over to that business associate anymore. And you know, generally, um, providers uh, and other covered entities are very good at assessing you know, what's the minimum necessary amount of information that needs to go to a vendor in order to have that vendor provide the services. Um, but they may just reassess what matters to them for those services. And they may not want to um, provide reproductive health information to a vendor um, in order to kind of circle the wagons around reproductive health privacy and be able, um, be able to 
you know, control the flow of that information to a third party should a request come. Those questions and kind of the processes around maybe filtering data or blinding data or removing data is again, super, uh, you know, kind of situation specific. There are some uh, limitations, technical and legal, um, that may prevent, you know, full, uh, full removal or full blinding. But if it is important to either entity, uh, you know, having those conversations, being open to others' viewpoints and really understanding how you can kind of walk together uh, and continue to be on the same page is, is so important, especially where we really do now have a patchwork of, of um, ideologies around this uh, from governments from state to state. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex and Kimmy. It's been our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. If you have any questions for Kimmy and Alex, their contact information is in the show notes. For more information on the impact of the Dobbs decision, visit the Post Row Resource Center on bakerlaw.com and check out all Dobbs On Demand episodes by subscribing to Baker Hosts wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to our next episode where attorneys from our healthcare practice will discuss the regulatory implications to be aware of since the Dobbs decision. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.